Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today for a recording of the Faith and Fashion podcast. My name is Sarah Al-Faiz, and tonight I'm representing Generation 2030, a youth-to-youth -youth organization that builds cultural bridges between the people of Saudi Arabia and the people of the UK. Fashion is one of Generation 2030's main focus areas, as it, it is a true representation of both culture and individual creative expression. Our programs at Generation 2030 are meant to ignite conversation very much like the one we are about to have today. Our hope for this evening is that we start a dialogue between Saudi and international creatives and professionals in the fashion industry, a true exchange that aims to bring forward different perspectives and experiences. We are very excited to welcome our esteemed panel, Professor Raina Lewis, Ray Joseph, Luay Nassim, Shahad Ishail and Sasha Newell. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. I'd also like to thank the British Embassy and Al Manwar Research Center for co-sponsoring the event and helping us bring it to a live audience here in Riyadh and online to an international audience. I'm really pleased that the British Embassy is able to be associated with this event about fashion. I think London's been setting global trends for generations and long may that continue, not least through London Fashion Week. I think increasingly we've seen that some of the great designers who've chosen to call London home are making available more and more modest product lines and that's the trend I think we will see continuing. But I think that however modest our fashion, we want what we wear to be green. And I think it's really impressive to see how the fashion industry has responded to consumer demand by producing in more and more sustainable items and looking at the processes that provide the clothes that we wear and how they can be adapted in a way that is kinder to the environment. I'd like just to conclude by saying thank you. A big thank you, of course, to Generation 2030. Thanks to Manawa. And thank you very much to the University of the Arts in London and to the panellists behind me, to the Pattern Concept Store and to everybody who's made this evening what I'm sure it will be. I'd like now to introduce you really to Dr. Rena Lewis. I don't think uh, particularly among this group you need any introduction. But as I understand it, you're really interested in faith, um, traditions and culture and fashion and the nexus perhaps between the two. So I very much look forward to learning more from you this evening. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Rosie. Thank you, Sarah. Welcome everyone, Assalamu Alaikum. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to Faith and Fashion tonight on behalf of London College of Fashion, UAL, and in partnership with the British Embassy, Riyadh, Generation 2030 and Al Manwar. For 10 years now, under the umbrella of faith and fashion, I've convened conversation about the role of dress in the creative expression of individual and community identity. This has built dialogue for fashion designers, brands and media with consumers and community leaders from many cultures in the UK and around the world. Faith and fashion acts as a conduit for exchange bringing together communities and interest groups who sometimes might not be able to share a platform in other circumstances. LCF has nourished as part of its creative and intellectual mission my long-standing research on the intersection between fashion cultures and religious and community cultures. 
In my university leadership work, I apply my research to facilitate expression of diverse beliefs and cultures present within our international student and staff community. Faith and Fashion is supported by LCF Global, the college directorate that collaborates with educational partners, government bodies and brands to address social issues and to innovate new and existing fashion economies. What then could be better than our focus tonight on UK and Saudi fashion in dialogue? We have a wonderful panel to discuss the richness of textile and dress heritage in contemporary fashion and to share insights on the creative opportunities for British and Saudi brands generated by current approaches to modesty and sustainability. Before I set the scene, allow me please to briefly introduce in alphabetical order our esteemed speakers. Shahad Al-Shail, sorry, Shahad Al-Shail is co-founder of ethical luxury label Abadia that unites craft skills with modern style. Shahad is also co-founder of Social Enterprise Project Just, which works for transparency in fashion supply chains. A regular speaker at economic and development forums, Shahad has also worked on economic development projects globally, including Rwanda, Armenia, and India. Ray Joseph, initially trained as a lawyer at Columbia University, and is now a circular fashion advocate whose deep knowledge of Saudi and regional fashion cultures has been deployed to build local appetite for the pre-owned. As well as her store, 1954 by Ray Joseph, Ray is also a consultant in luxury fashion and retail, working with international and local creatives. Loai Nassim is a designer, entrepreneur, and business executive, co-founder of Tafasil International Trading Limited Company, Lomar, who sustainably produced menswear, women's wear, and children's wear, combines textile innovation to elevate traditional garments for contemporary life. And Loai, I should add, is also the chairman of the Saudi Fashion Association, the industry body that liaises with policymakers. Sasha Newell, seated opposite me, is co-founder of My Wardrobe HQ, a consumer-facing platform designed to reduce fashion waste by providing a circular model for brands to monetize previously sold stock. Sasha's earlier media work, including at Vogue, was before you started doing this, and this dovetails with her experience in policy campaigning, notably, to pull out one, working with the UK government on the introduction of a tax on single-use plastic bags. I'm honored to be in your company. Join me, please, in welcoming our panel. We are tonight discussing Saudi and UK fashion in dialogue at a very exciting moment. Saudi Arabia has fostered rapid shifts in permitted social behavior, alongside a continuation of campaigns to increase Saudi participation in paid employment, including, of course, for women. A significant investment in leisure spaces and activities, from cinemas to rock concerts, provides opportunity for activities outside the home for women and men that were not previously common. Whilst like all rapid or top-down change, the experience of social transition can be uneven, many in Saudi Arabia's youthful and educated population have enthusiastically embraced new social opportunities. In fashion terms, whether for work or for leisure, there are now more bodies in more public spaces than before, all of them needing appropriate clothing for their context that will meet diverse aesthetic preferences. 
a context consideration for women in dressing modestly in public spaces outside the home. Before 2019, as everyone here will know, public modesty mandated an abaya, a floor-length outer garment for all women, Saudi nationals and visitors, although international women weren't always required to cover their hair. In 2019, a significant change removed the specification for an abaya. Now, as long as women dress modestly, the type of garment is not specified. Today, Saudi women continue to wear an abaya, some or all of the time, and the abayas are often changing, as we'll be hearing. As a garment viewed by many as cultural rather than religious, the abaya can signal national cultural identity and pride, and it continues to provide a template for creative design practice. By the same token, national identity for men has been expressed through wearing a tobe, a long robe paired with a gutra to cover the head, and in some employment sectors, this is a workwear requirement. Saudi consumers and fashion professionals are therefore long accustomed to moving between style registers and garment types. And we should note that the term traditional is often applied to garments conventional to Saudi Arabia and across the GCC. And within this categorization of traditional, as my students know, I always caution that traditional doesn't mean out of time or fossilized. As Lomar and Abadia's beautiful designs illustrate, traditional garments involve cycles of innovation and change in the past and in the present. So too, do history and tradition permeate garments referred to as modern or international or Western? With excellent timing, a new report on the Middle East appeared last month from Business of Fashion. Industry experts identify this region as a key area for growth globally, predicting an estimated 7%, I have to write this down or else I'll get it wrong, an estimated 7% compound annual growth rate from 2023 to 27. The regional market is estimated at 80 billion US dollars, with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates accounting for up to 50% of that. The two countries are predicted to grow at 5%. I am, side note, proud to say that the report's lead author is Rowan Mackey, who is currently completing her PhD with me at UAL. And I thank you, Rowan, for arranging for me to have academic access to some of your findings. The report makes clear that the appetite for fashion is not simply a result of increased affluence. It is also generated by, they say, changing societal norms and large-scale investment in public spaces. So it's not just about having more money to spend, it's about where you go with what you wear and the needs that generates. This bears out the findings and predictions from my own research in Saudi Arabia pre-pandemic, and there are some copies of the report downstairs, and I'm sure we can add a link to the download post-production. Public spaces are fashion spaces, opportunities to see and be seen within the specific and gendered conventions of probity over public display. As wardrobe opportunities open up with the removal of the mandatory abaya, the crafting of modesty for Saudis and visitors, and there are now many more visitors, becomes differently complicated, raising fresh consumer needs and market opportunities. And for the benefit of our non-Saudi podcast viewers, I should explain that an abaya, when worn closed, functions as outerwear. It completely obscures what a woman is wearing underneath. Now, with the new modesty code, many women wear their abaya open, 
meaning that the garments underneath also have to contribute to the staging of modesty as preferred by each individual woman. So an abaya takes on a new function as one component of a modest fashion ensemble. Much as women in Muslim minority contexts might achieve modesty through garment combination or layering. This means that some of the modest fashion hacks deployed by women in the UK and popularized by our many modest fashion influencers now connect more directly to how Saudi women style modesty at home as well as abroad. And I was delighted, therefore, to see that the Business of Fashion report finds that, quote, high earners in both countries say quality and elegance are among the most important characteristics. Modesty falls into the middle, likely, they say, due to the ability of consumers to style clothing as needed to suit their preferences. Now, I love this because in the research that I did on um, modest workwear in the UK and Saudi Arabia, we asked men and women what terminology they would use, and elegant in both countries appeared as one of the most frequent synonyms mm -hmm. for modesty. Elegance was often combined with not wanting to look vulgar. Mm -hmm. So I think it's also really important for people in the industry and in the media to be able to key in to the types of language that people are using, because it's not always going to be the word modest. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the way that people talk about how they want to look or not look. Business of Fashion confirmed that the online environment continues to grow for sales and fashion inspiration, dominated by Instagram, and offline retail remains central. Regional consortia are adept at curating localized offline and blended consumer experience for global brands. The growth of these practices confirms my prediction that religious cultures will be increasingly integrated into the ongoing diversification of the globalized marketing Canada calendar. As well as wooing East Asian consumers for Lunar New Year, for example, brands now increasingly are also attending to Ramadan in Muslim majority and minority contexts. Global brands need deep fashion intelligence to make a mature market offer in the Saudi context, growing meaningful rather than superficial connections to fashion heritage and shopping habits. Local creatives lead the way with nuanced activations as seen in Ray's recent multi-brand heritage experience in your Al Ula store. Mm -hmm. As Saudi Arabia gears up for a post-oil economy, sustainability remains a central preoccupation, just as it is for our many fashion students at UAL. And all of our panelists are immersed in creating businesses that operate sustainability and encourage industry sustainability, attending to ethical labor conditions and environmental impact, preserving cultural heritage and craft skills, and reducing fashion waste. For advocates of the circular fashion economy, our two countries have had historically different attitudes to the pre-owned, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this. In the UK, thrifting, buying inexpensive vintage in charity shops, is a rite of passage for every hard-up or impoverished young fashionista. Now, as fostered by Sasha's My Wardrobe HQ, the pleasures of conventional shopping are replicated in the rental experience and celebrity renters consecrate leasing as an ethical choice rather than an economic necessity. In the Middle East, secondhand retail as a route to fashion has not historically been a feature of the mid-range or luxury consumption of Western garments. 
there is a historical practice of gifting traditional garments and textiles within royal and elite women's patronage networks and of the charitable donation of used clothes, but not a retail history in the same way. In this light, Ray's development of luxury brands as an entry point for circular fashion advocacy pioneers new narratives of heritage transfer. Mass market items, meanwhile, are also endowed with vintage value by younger generations, as Sasha can tell us from her work launching Depop in the UK. Given that fast fashion brand Zara is one of the top five brands named by high earners in Saudi Arabia and UAE, UAE synergies abound. Who better then to discuss the opportunities of Saudi and fashion, of UK and Saudi fashion dialogue than our esteemed panel? who will now share their opening remarks. Welcome them again, please. <laughs> Are you comfortable to go this way? Uh, as you wish. Are you happy to start? Sure, sure. Go ahead, then. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Arena. Thank you so much, everyone, for attending. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm very excited to have this conversation. Uh, I think it's um, going to be a fun one, I hope, and an engaging one for everyone here. Uh, just a brief about myself. I'm going to try to keep it short. My name is Ray Joseph. I'm a fashion entrepreneur from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. I lived, worked, and studied abroad in different countries uh, throughout my life. So that kind of gives me, gave me growing up kind of exposure to and pride, a pride in our local roots and culture, as well as exposure to the international market and what's happening on different uh, uh, countries uh, around the world. I entered, as you said, I <laughs> initially I'm educated as a lawyer and I practice for a few years, but I've always had a passion for fashion. It's always been something that I've studied and worked on here and there a little bit until I decided to make a shift and follow a real passion of mine, which is vintage fashion collecting, and kind of bring that to my part of the world and share that beauty and that new market segment with people that people were not familiar with it. So I you know, entered into the fashion industry through 1954 vintage uh, by introducing to what was then the first vintage fashion house that's locally owned and run. Uh, throughout my period, you know, it's been a journey with 1954. It's a new concept, so it came, it wasn't just a brand, it was also became an, a kind of an educational platform. We shared a lot of knowledge and kind of context and putting sustainability into it and educating from different angles as well as running as a fashion brand. And through that, I also took on uh, uh, creative advisory roles here and there with uh, international brands that want to break into the market and understand the culture and speak to the consumer in a language they understand, as well as the local brands that are looking to kind of translate what we have here in a language that the international consumer can understand or uh, has an appetite for. Uh, I've also launched a podcast called Great Things, where we discuss things that are similar to what we have here, because I really think these discussions are really important to kind of bridge the gap and help us understand each other and understand ourselves here in Saudi where like you said we're undergoing a transformation in fashion in different aspects and with that comes a lot of self-reflection and uh, learning who we are in order to share that uh, with the world uh, and I'm very happy to be here thank you for having me and I look forward to uh, discussing things with, the, with you and with the panel. Ray, thank you so much, and I'm so glad that you can join us. I'm really interested to hear more about how you've helped build the appetite here for thinking about the pre-owned uh, as something desirable. Loai, let me hand over to you. Okay. Loai uh, Nassim, based in Jeddah. I'm from Jeddah. I graduated from the Art Institute of Houston um, as a graphic designer. Then I moved to uh, work in advertising field in, in Jeddah and uh, Lubernet, 
as a graphic designer, then art director, then uh, nine years in creative uh, department as a creative director. Um, this is all before going to the fashion uh, world. Then uh, I tried to, to make my own design of Thobe because Thobe was the whole, uh, yani, uh, from I, uh, since I born, the, the Thobe is one Thobe, one design, one cut, and one fabric, almost. <laughs> and then I wanted to, I, at that time I, I, I hated to wear Thobe because it's, it's not practical for me. Then uh, I designed my own thobes, uh, just as uh, uh, I, I told my, my, my colleagues and my friends that, that I have a tailor, my own tailor, to make my, my design. And then uh, start, uh, the, my colleagues start yani, uh, ordering from me, asking me to, to, do, to make a collection for them. I refused for like one year, and then they show me the money. Then I was, <laughs> I said, okay, well, okay, I will do it. <laughs> so I, I did it as a favor. Then uh, and other people asked me, uh, their friend, their, their relatives. Then I told my wife, look, uh, we have now a business, like you know, it's like a spark comes to, to us and uh, could be a business. Then uh, we started from home, uh, one tailor. I resigned from the agency mm -hmm. and um, I changed my career to fashion. Um, in 2005, we opened, we opened the first store with 15 tailors. Those 15 tailors was in my basement. <laughs> I moved them to the store and uh, we started with, with one branch, 2005, me and my wife. At that time, uh, was like uh, shocking for the uh, uh, this, yani, the, the people around us uh, in Jeddah and my relative, my even my family, mm -hmm. they refused to do uh, to make yani, to buy from from the store because yani, they they see they, they saw something different, uh, different design, different color, different fabric. Even the decoration inside is totally different. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I, I thought me and my wife in. You know, to make this uh, concept uh, six, uh, six, uh, Yannick succeeded, and um, we we break through. Uh, in 2007, we opened the first store in Riyadh, and uh, we continue uh, expanding until today. We have 16 uh, store around the kingdom. We have like uh, 400 employee and uh, very big and huge uh, manufacturing facilities. Alhamdulillah. And with like, uh, we produce uh, more than 200,000 pieces per year. Mashallah. With like 100,000 uh, database. And that's it. I, uh, last thing, I was like uh, CEO until 2000. One week before the uh, corona, I resigned. <laughs> <laughs> and I left it for another CEO. And today I'm, I'm just uh, in the board. That's and it. one of the things we should say as well, which is how I initially came into contact with you and your brand, is that you've been very innovative in um, creating modern versions of Abayas and Thobes for men and women's different roles in the workplace or for sports and so on as well. So meeting different social needs for different sorts of occupations. Right. Uh, we started with men because, you know, uh, I, I, I found uh, a gap here. Uh, in the market that, that 
we can we can redefine the the the, the Saudi uh, uh, the men's fashion because you know it's. Uh, it was one, as I told you, one color, one design. So there is a gap here. We can do uh, more uh, designs and uh, to, yani, to follow the, the trend. Then we, we was like a trendsetter mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the market yeah, until today. I remember. I remember when, when, they, uh, when you started publishing your designs and be, they became popular. It was really trendsetting that everyone was yeah. talking about it. And, and the opportunity was yani, uh, easy because there was no competitors at that time. We, we started uh, the, like a first one and, and even with the resistance uh, from, from the society. But it was a very creative idea. People who appreciate the design and creativity, um, they were uh, our customers. Thank you. Thank you. And we look forward to hearing more. And Shahad, tell us a little. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation because I really do believe that clothing have the power to tell a story about who we are and where we come from. And through that story, create a dialogue about connection and similarities that might not seem so obvious, but is, but is actually there. It drives a lot of our work. So, so thank you. Um, I'm happy to be here. Um, I come to this world from a very different background. Uh, I come to it from a business international development background. I actually uh, was working, as you said, in, uh, in different countries around the world. And when I was in, uh, in India, the big factory collapse in Bangladesh happened, Rana Plaza in 2013. And that was a truly a wake-up moment for me to realize how I didn't know where my clothes came from and, and how I, as someone that identified to be quite ethical and socially responsible, someone that had left family behind and went to this foreign land to alleviate poverty and create dignity for people was unintentionally by, through my purchases, was creating poverty and even death somewhere else in the world. And, it just didn't connect. I truly felt like a hypocrite at that moment and wanted to change that. So the curiosity was ignited and I started to research where clothes came from and figuring out the supply chain um, and, and traceability in the fashion industry, which we know is a, is a huge issue. Uh, fast forward to coming to Abadia today. Uh, it really is created with the mentality of what ethical luxury could look like from this world, uh, to, to, from this part of the world to, to the rest of the world, how supporting craftsmanship can be contemporary and rich and uh, very unique, and how inspired by culture can, can also be something that's modern and contemporary and seen in different contexts, not just in Saudi alone. So that drives a lot of our work behind Abadia, and I'm, I'm so excited to have this conversation collectively. Thank you. Thank you. And one of the things I've noticed on some of the visits that I've been able to make this week, for example, to the Royal Museum of Traditional Arts, is that there is such a growing appetite for not only learning about and documenting uh, the richness of traditional craft heritage here, but also learning to do it, and for a whole new generation learning to do it, whether for a leisure pursuit or potentially for building careers in that. So 100%. you work with artisan craftspeople a lot, don't you? A lot, yeah, and, and a lot of what drove our work in the beginning is 
that craftsmanship here was unfortunately seen as less than. It was a pity purchase. Mm -hmm. And when we create a pity purchase culture, that doesn't create sustainable income for the craftswomen, that doesn't create any sort of pride to the work, and it doesn't improve our quality. So we needed to shift that mentality by elevating the quality of the craftsmanship that was being made, and also creating, like Ray did with her work, education around why this is better, why um, this work, this, this sedu takes hours in creation, what's the history behind it, how we've modernized it. Um, I personally is, the learned is the weaving, yes. mm -hmm. the weaving technique. Yeah, I've and I've sat and personally learned how to do it. I'm terrible wow. at it. They're not. Wow, it's not very good. <laughs> but but I needed to learn how to do it in er in order to understand the process and how to take it forward. But through one of my proudest moments is actually seeing the women teach it to their daughters nice um, as, a, as a thing of pride that they want to pass on and the daughters learning it from their mothers not, as a, not because they're trying to just create income out of it but because it is a sense of pride. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, one of the greatest achievements we're able to do by working with craftswomen and artisans. And the important thing there is, and I love you know, your phrase, the pity purchase, because anyone will buy a beaded pencil case. Right. That's the one-off purchase. You don't go back. It doesn't exactly. make a sustainable brand. It doesn't provide employment. But the, the daughter that's learning is actually learning a skill that, w that can Absolutely. help her make a living. And that's the thing. It's not, it doesn't, it's not a hobby. It will be sustainable if there's, if there's work. Yeah, we have to create real economic incentive for these artisans. We can't ask them to preserve the craft for just the sake of preserving the craft. Mm -hmm. They need to have an economic incentive. It needs to provide income for them and a livelihood and a sense of pride and appreciation for the work that they're doing. I think all of those need to be there for us to truly preserve that heritage forward. Loa, you were going to come in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying you know, uh, now the advantage that she, the, 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 the daughter of the new generation, they want to do it be, not because, you know, because they love in it. Mm -hmm. because of the uh, richness of the culture. Yeah. Then because of the economic. But before it was the opposite. Mm. So this is now today we can uh, see more creative uh, designs uh, here and there. Yeah. So it opens creative careers for more people mm -hmm. by making something that was previously lower rated, lower esteem work, something that's also regarded as being in the creative industries and you're in your different ways as you are as well involved in educating a consumer public yeah. to understand why this is worth paying for and recalibrating something as contemporary fashion yeah. as well as cultural heritage yeah. we now hand over to you sasha to tell us a bit about your work um, advocating for circular fashion and reducing waste absolutely so lovely to meet everybody and thank you so much for coming it's my first time in saudi arabia and i just wanted to say what a fantastic country it is. I have to say a bit of a surprise. <laughs> the, the press that Saudi gets in the rest of the world, it, honestly, this, it, it, it's wonderful here. It's what's really struck me, um, probably three key things, is how young everybody is. I feel ancient when I'm going out at night, but the youth, it's the youth, the vibrancy, and how friendly everyone is here. It's, it's, it's been a really fantastic experience, so thank you. So moving on to my wardrobe HQ, um, before I launch into exactly what we do, probably 
worth contextualizing and really coming up with the why we do what we do. So who here tonight, it's going to wake everyone up now, see who's listening. Um, who here came by Uber or who uses Uber? Just raise a hand if you use Uber. And then who in the next couple of years will not buy a car because they use Uber? Or, who, or does everyone, will everyone still buy cars? <laughs> Genuine question. You wouldn't buy a car, yeah, only one. Okay, interesting. Um, who here has ever bought a record or a CD? Oh, quite a few. So You've everyone's got a load split. of vinyl heads. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> they're, they're not as young as they look then. And who w would in the future buy a CD or a record? A handful, yeah. So what I'm trying to get, oh, actually, the last one is Airbnb. So who uses Airbnb? So you're happy to stay in someone else's house and that doesn't freak you out like it might have done a few years ago. So my wardrobe HQ is a different way of consuming fashion. And it sort of touches on all of those, all of those points. So what we've developed is a tech platform that this is getting quite techy now, but on a, on a single SKU basis, will allow that SKU to either be rented on a one-off basis, so maybe it's a, a, a party dress for an event, or it can be subscribed to, so it can be rented for a month or two months or three months on a subscription offer, so the brand can set up uh, their customers on subscription to pay a monthly fee to receive then two, four, six items for as long as that customer would like to be using those items for. And finally, um, anything can be sold from can be converted to a sale or sold immediately. So it's a different way. It, it sounds not necessarily groundbreaking, but there is no retail tech that's ever been built that allows for those three different journeys on a single SKU basis. So the reason that we, we decided to create this was um, the co my co-founder and I had both come from the fashion industry and we'd seen the waste firsthand. I don't know if you're familiar with the horrific stats in the UK market. In the UK, 60% of all garments bought go to landfill within one year. So wow. within 12 months of purchase, 60% go straight to landfill. Worse than that, um, with the fast fashion brands, uh, actually just out of interest, does anyone buy here, buy from Boohoo, Shein, please don't be ashamed, it'd be really interesting to see. <laughs> Boohoo, Shein, um, pretty little thing, misguided. Yeah, yeah interesting. So with, with those, those kind of brands, they don't take returns back into stock. So when you send a return, the trick is just make sure you send a parcel that weighs the same as the one that was sent out to you. You'll get refunded. It goes straight to landfill. Nobody opens it. So little insider scoop if you want to <laughs> if you want to work around um, their processes. But that that's that's a terrible statistic because 50% of all items bought online are, get returned. So so those returns are going straight to landfill. So you start adding it all up. Um, and, then, and then add to that that a pair of jeans or a t-shirt, if it's made out of cotton, that requires 15,000 litres of water to grow it. And I think water means a lot in the Saudi region. Mm -hmm. So one t-shirt that you can now buy for less than a cu cup of coffee has required 15,000 litres of water to grow the cotton to make that t-shirt. And if it's been bought, it may never be worn. It might be going straight to landfill, or it might be worn once and, and then go to landfill. So all of this is horrific for mm -hmm. the environment. And we wanted to create just a different approach to how people consume fashion. Mm -hmm. And it does seem a, li 
a bit wild at first um, at first glance, particularly when resale is such a new area in itself. Mm -hmm. As Rena was saying, it's, it's quite an resale is quite established already in the UK market. So the next step on from that is this this concept of rental and subscription. What we're aiming to do through that is extend the lifespan of products. So you also read, um, particularly unfortunately in the luxury market, it's, you know all brands are guilty. Whether they're at the fast fashion end or, or the luxury end, at the luxury end they'll burn stock to reduce um, the to, so they, they, there are no overstocks. Yeah, yeah. So that there are no overstocks and their brand doesn't sort of diminish in value by having excess stock. Rather than keep reducing it or have it in TK Maxx or whatever, they would rather burn it. And we've probably all read about some of the big the big brands that have been caught out. Now there have been laws uh, brought into the French market to prevent burning of luxury stock, but sadly there are always ways around uh, getting rid of stock if you, if you really have the intention to do that. So with our platform, we don't, we don't buy stock, we work on a consignment basis. At one end of the market, we work with contemporary and luxury brands who have excess stock. So now we're an option to burning. We can take that stock, we can offer it out on a rental basis at 10% of its original RRP, that, which means for customers, we, we've increased the um, addressable market for that brand. If something's a thousand pounds normally to have access to, but now you can, but you can rent it for a hundred pounds, the size of the market that can now have access to that dress has, has in, in increased um, exponentially. So, um, and then at a contemporary level, it's, you know, 300, a 300 pound dress um, would rent for 30 pounds. So suddenly we're playing in the sort of same area as fast fashion, but for that you, you can trade up and, and wear um, much, much better quality items. So yeah, yeah that, that, that's, the, that's what we do at My Wardrobe HQ. It's fairly long-winded and complicated, but <laughs> you've made it very yeah. straightforward yeah. for us. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start with a couple of conversation points for us before we open for observations and questions from you. Um, I'm going to start with Loai and Shahad. You both create modern versions of traditional garments. Um, can you tell us, we can see, how, this is my third visit to Saudi Arabia, and I can see the extent of the change. And the pace of change has increased so dramatically since the time I was here in 2019. And everyone I speak to here talks about the rapidity of the change, uh, the new social spaces, the different ways in which people are going out, and also changes in working practices. The workspace has changed a lot as well. How is this impacting on what people wear? For women and men, what women are buying, women and men are buying and wearing for work and for leisure. What sort of changes do you see? And is that affecting your offer? Is that affecting the types of products that you circulate? Do you want to start? Go ahead. Look, for women, it's more, more difficult than, than men. Men. Uh, now they they uh, they want to to be with the trend, the local trend. Uh, it didn't affect on 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 sales nothing, uh, but um, but for ladies yes. now they want more colors and more 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 uh, design and they want to follow the trend internationally and locally here. They want more uh, practical abaya uh, with the light uh, fabric and summer. Uh, uh, winter, winter abaya wasn't uh, exist like three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. Today we have uh, a winter abaya. Uh, we introduced uh, leather uh, 
fair, uh, different kind of fabrics in, in the abaya and the top. So it gives us more flexibility, more creativity. We can go beyond and, 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 and faster. Uh, and, and this is like a kind of uh, line extension, which is good, but um, uh, I mean, the, 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 the consumption is it's the same. But now we have more variety. So it's spread thinner across different... Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so this, yeah. And is it that there's more winter buyers? This is really interesting. Is this because women are spending more time at leisure venues, so they're traveling more in the winter and they're outdoors more in the winter, that they want a winter way to buy more? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, an, uh, it, it's the same. Okay, now the women and men, uh, they are outside more than before. But, uh, you know, Abaya, it was like only a cover. Yep. Mm. And the, uh, the, uh, the real dress of it's winter underneath. is inside. Yep. But now, it, it, they combined both of them. So uh, the Abaya now became يعني, like the uh, coat or the... So it's part of the outfit in a yeah. different way. Right, yeah. And for men, it's not... They're wearing... They're, you're wearing a beautiful black corduroy toque. They want more outdoor winter. They want more warm weather wear as well, yeah? Uh, the, the, the use to the wool fabric, for example, and, and jacket, winter jacket, mm. or sedere, uh, uh, the, vest. the vest. But for, for, for example, myself, uh, um, uh, trying to, to, uh, to use more different fabric, not only wool, no. like the velvet, like this one. And, but yeah. So, so now we have more options and it's more open yani, for people to... Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, just to build on your point, I think before the abaya was really something, it's just something you put on to be able to go into your car and even if you go somewhere you would just layer underneath because the, um, you could have, you can be expressive with the abaya, you, we always could have, but it wasn't as socially acceptable, let's say. So a lot of people would just opt for the very simple, very basic, and just layer underneath. It wasn't mm. something that they're willing to invest into. Like a, a winter abaya, we've always had that, but it was just a simple wool, a bit thicker. Mm. But now you can see use of velvet and fur and different leather. Mm. So mm. now it's more of a statement and a, and a, and a right. part of your look rather than just something that you put on your look, yeah. right? Mm. I would I would say that like it's important to note that also Saudi is a huge country right. and that there are very different consumption habits as well as preference of style depends on the geography of the area the weather etc so like you know historically speaking you could go to the western part in Saudi and find a lot more colorful clothing than for example in central part of Saudi and uh, similar to the eastern side, etc. So there are differences in that. But to your point, with the increase of public spaces for both entertainment and for work, there the outer layer became more of a statement, where it used to be before where women would kind of wear for private events. Mm -hmm. So the abaya is, like Ray said, just, just taking them from one place mm -hmm. to the next, and the real outfit is under. Um, now the real outfit is the outer, the outer coat with whatever is layered underneath it. So, for example, for, for us as Abadia, from the beginning, we, we started with very heavy winter coats. Um, that is actually our uh, statement or iconic piece. We call them farwa. 
here. The best in the market. Uh, the best in the market. I've Amazing. seen them. Beautiful. They are inspired by a traditional Bedouin um, coat that is worn often in, in very cold desert winter. And we've modernized it for the contemporary woman and now for men too. Um, but that was, that was our iconic piece, but the majority of the driver of the sales were dresses, separate, etc. Now the outerwear, both for summer and winter, is the highest driver um, in, in the market. And we're seeing it because of leisure spaces for sure, women spending also more time within Saudi. I think the increase of tourism opportunities within the country has been really exciting to see. Um, as well as women in workspaces, not just participating in the workforce because we've always been there, but participating in very public ways like conferences, events, um, being in the forefront visually, I think has affected a lot how women view kind of the outer layer of, of what they're wearing. Yes, and I think when I was here last time, I was talking to um, some Saudi women, and they were saying, you know, if they go to a conference in London, they probably they might wear an abaya, they might not. If they go to a conference elsewhere in the Gulf region, they'll definitely wear one because it shows that they're Saudi, yeah. and they want to evidence that sort of national identity and pride. Mm. And I think what you were saying as well about how it's so interesting, the shift to the outer garment as both part of the ensemble, but as something that's more privileged. When we think about UK brands and other global brands, and they're looking for crossover garments, mm -hmm. then that's something they need to be cognizant of. They need to be aware of that this is somewhere where they might have items, mm -hmm. as well as regular clothing, mm -hmm. that can also fit into that sort of a purpose. I mean, abaya is a word in Arabic language. It's just an outer garment, and it's a word it's that's... Outerwear. It's outerwear, it's abaya, and it's also, it's abaya. In formal Arabic, we say abaya just in our uh, Saudi dialect. It's, it's for men and women, but historically, with certain right. trends that kind of shifted to the definition that we have today of abaya being this thing that women wear certain colors, which is now shifting. Now, we were talking earlier about, you see a lot of people ref referring to a trench coat that is maybe a little bit bit longer, a bit more, you know, uh, bigger in size or more loose as their abaya. Mm. So what is abaya, right? I think this is a beautiful point to like uh, export our, our abaya and our abaya designers abroad to the UK and different countries and also uh, have um, them look into that as something they can invest in and something that would work here and across the world also. Absolutely. And in terms of the crossover market for abayas into international markets, obviously, for cruise wear, for summer wear, for southern Europe and mm -hmm. warm climate countries, yes. And then for cold climate countries as well, some of the abayas that are now available that are slightly shorter, mm -hmm. that aren't, you know, aren't going to drag in the puddles when you yeah. get off the subway in London. Those things also have so much more crossover potential. So it is a, a two-way street there. Uh, I'll tell you something that's very funny. I was... Um, we, had, we have a, an annual fashion futures that's organized by uh, the Fashion Commission in Saudi where you know we bring global experts and industry people from around the world. There's panels. It's a beautiful event. I hope you get to attend one day. But in one, one of the years, there was a very famous fashion stylist that is world-renowned. And usually when I go to these places, I like to wear something either that's vintage or something very Saudi because I, those are things that I love and I'm passionate about. I like to be it, not just talk about it, but also wear it. So I was wearing something called Abayat Nisf, which is something that is super, super traditional. I don't think anyone in our generation 
chose to wear, at least in the past five years. It's something that my, everyone's grandma had at some point. It's a silk garment of a certain fit. And I, I was wearing it. I was wrapping it in a certain way. I, I, I love it. And that lady noticed it. And, and I'm telling you, this is someone who, you know, styled the biggest magazine covers. And she saw it and she was like, that's so chic. It's so fabulous. I want one. And I got her one, and she's wearing it with her Adidas tracksuit mm. in New York. So that is Abaya. That's something that, that my grandma dialogue. That well is cultural done. dialogue. So it's definitely something that could be transferred. It's all about how you present it and how you yeah. see it. Right. And I'm now going to come back to you, Ray and Sasha, to think about sustainable and circular fashion. I'd like to think for a minute about the overlap and the distinction in the mixture of challenge and opportunity for building fashion sustainability in the UK and in Saudi Arabia. Um, are the distinctions and the commonalities about attitudes or and about infrastructure? So I'm going to start with you first, I think, please, um, sure. Ray, because you've had to build the appetite yep. for wearing the pre-owned and making having the pre-owned also become a sort of a prestige activity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you know the global context as well. Tell us a little bit about how you see the distinctions and the overlaps. Yes. So I came across vintage by coincidence. So the idea of sustainability and wearing something that was owned by some, someone else potentially is something that we have in our culture. It's part of our you know, uh, history. Everyone owns something from your mom and your grandma, and we do that within our families and our close circles. But like you earlier said, in a retail context, that's mm. not, I would say, frowned upon and stigmatized. To an extent, it's seen as like, you don't need charity. Why would you buy it? You only buy something that's used if you need to. So uh, we've always had that idea uh, in our culture, but it was never uh, viewed as something that would be employed as a business or something that everyone can partake in. Now, when I started into vintage fashion, I, like I said, it was a coincidence. I stumbled upon a store, I met the owner, he introduced me to it, and I caught the bug, and I became fascinated, and it became, for me, it's, uh, I call it, uh, maybe I get dramatic about it because I love it so much, but uh, for me, it's really, it takes over me. I love the history of it. Uh, Shahad, you earlier talked about the story that a piece can tell, and I think with vintage, you really learn a lot about everything, about uh, you know when the piece was made, how it was socially, economically, what the industrial climate was like. So that fascinated me, not just as a garment, but as a story and what it says about cultures and societies. So I caught the bug and I started, I didn't even think of it as pre-owned. I thought of it as beauty that I want to own, beauty that I want to you know, uh, have in my closet and wear. And the, the reason I started 1954 and, and that became, um, we brought it to life is because similar to what happened with you in, in the Thobes uh, where people started asking you, I would wear my vintage gowns to weddings in Saudi, which are, are I think are red carpet events for us. <laughs> like people dress up and you know, it's very fabulous. So I would wear them and they're really, I would wear a 1950s like Dior dress or something like that, I know. And how could you not catch, how can you not notice piece like that and sometimes it's not even signed I always when, when I talk about vintage I don't want to just restrict it to designer names because even designers that are not known or custom uh, made pieces are still gorgeous and people even when they don't know they notice it's special mm. and I always I would say 99% of the times that I'm asked about a garment that I'm wearing it's 
99% of the time it's vintage. And I always tell people it's because you see something different. It's the way it's cut, it's the way it's made, it's all of it. So I started sourcing for people and I started started becoming like a little job on, you know, I wasn't planning for it to be, it was just on a friendly basis. And then, you know, I was a lawyer, doing well as a lawyer, but I wasn't thriving. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't alive. It wasn't, give, give me li it wasn't giving me life. So I decided to give this a chance and bring this beauty to my country and, and the region. So that's how 1954 started. Now, something that I was maybe a little bit naive about is I, because in my circle, I've al it's always been my thing, vintage, so everyone around me knows there are not many questions about the pre-owned and, you know, it is what it is. I started, when we started the business, we noticed the questions. In the beginning, people thought vintage meant an aesthetic, like a retro look. Ah. So, okay, uh, they, they would get the, for let's say a dress or a bag and they're like oh but it had this scratch mm -hmm. and it's like a minor scratch but like can I get a new one I'm like <laughs> there is no new one this is it <laughs> you know that's the piece and then slowly we realize that you know there is a gap there is a gap in awareness not everyone there's always a niche that was always fully knowledgeable very excited to have something local curated for them and vintage but there's a big market that uh, there are luxury consumers or you know non-luxury consumers even the, who are interested in it I realized they're, they're, the biggest obstacle for us is just education and bringing awareness and also tying that to our culture because I think there is an international dialogue about sustainability and the different elements you could, or different ways you could be sustainable and obviously renting and buying vintage or secondhand is, is that, is one of the ways you can be sustainable. But there isn't, it's always approached from a, a side that doesn't, relate to a lot of people here, as in it's not a language they speak, it's often a little bit, I don't like to use the term westernized, but a little bit westernized, so it's like, they're like, okay, what do I have to do with this? Okay, uh, you know, they, they don't see it as that. So it's more tying in that with who we are and what we do. And how do you do that? How do you make that connection? I think first of all, you, you, like you said, in the UK, they already have an underlying understanding. It's a rite of passage to so like go thrifting and buy and vintage and all of that. And people continue to do it on red carpets. But for us, that doesn't exist. There's also, there's honestly, often it's just the vintage, oh, it's so cool. And then with the consumers who are not aware, there's a lot of people who already know, but it's so cool. And then like, oh, is it worn already? So the way you want to do it is just kind of educating of what educating people on what that means, and and how that um, ha that it's clean basically that it's sourced properly. I always give people the analogy. It's very simple, but I think it gets the message across. I'm like. Listen, you go to the fanciest restaurants and you eat with a spoon and they go wash it and then you, you don't mind it. So, you know what, if you buy secondhand, just think of the bigger picture. And another thing that I, I often don't find enough people talk about with secondhand and our culture is we have it in our, you know, we're very much a religious community. Even if you're not, even people who are not practicing, we just have it, it's part of our culture, right? So the concept of Ihsan, I always bring it up in the context of sustainability. We have that concept of doing good in the world and building the world and helping um, improve the condition of the world and the environment and whatever is around you. And I always tell them, just see that from that side, from that context. It's something that, you know, when you do, <laughs> you know, it, it uh, fulfills also that maybe spiritual purpose that you have. I, I always joke emotional. and say, emotional side, I always tell them you get halal points, just, you know, set the intention, you know? Yeah, and, you, and you look fabulous while wearing it, right? Yeah. It's still, you're not compromising. You're actually getting something 
that is could be even better than something you find in the market now. So that's a really brilliant example of cultural translation and yeah. fashion as dialogue because you're framing it as an Islamically ethical practice within something that is a cultural norm. It's not about individual personal piety necessarily. Yeah. It's part of the cultural framework yeah. that you would understand that even, you know, either as an act of piety or as a metaphor uh -huh. that makes sense for seeing why there is good in doing that. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think that plays a big role in that. And also with vintage and particularly with what we're doing with 1954, we kind of focus on medium to high end. So it's more luxury. Uh, and with vintage particularly, that's when you get things, we, we love beauty here in this region. We love one of a kind, unique pieces. No one else has that, exclusive. And that's, by definition, that's what vintage is. So often, um, those pieces fly like hotcakes, you know, like everyone wants that. So people, it's just talking to people in a language that they understand and approaching them from the perspective that they prefer when it comes to what they wear and how they want to be seen. So I find that the uniqueness of vintage, in addition to the Ihsan part, in addition to educating about what it, what it means to wear something that was pre-owned. All of that collectively is a conversation that you want to have with the consumer. And I think there's a, uh, from when we started to now, there was major, major improvement. And I'm sure you uh, noticed that as well in your, in your business. I mean, we started Fashion Rental two months before COVID breakout. Okay. So can you imagine okay, okay, okay. if yeah, you're yeah, concerned yeah. about hygiene? Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that was a, that's a really big one for us. So, <laughs> um, so we don't use dry cleaning. Okay. Um, try and avoid it where, wherever we can, because obviously the impact exactly. of that mm -hmm. is yeah. severe. Um, and we use ozone cleaning instead for all mm -hmm. the garments, uh, which is essentially the garments are put into an ozone unit, an extra O3 molecule is injected into that unit, and everything um, is cleaned with biological level, um, meaning that actually it's, it's medical, medical grade clean. Every piece of bacteria is destroyed in that process. So I actually got to the point where Clearly, we weren't that busy for the first when nobody was going out, um, and the the unit that we were using for our own zone was was then used for um, PPE equipment by mm -hmm. hospitals. Oh, wow. So that Amazing. that's the level of cleanliness, Amazing. and of, of course messaging and PR that we never thought we'd be going out with as a fashion company was. Our, our cleaning has yeah. just been taken over by um, yeah, m medical manufacturers. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it was very strange times, but a, a lot of these businesses um, that are based on um, resale and life extension and yeah, I mean, historically, all of retail has been linear. And what we're trying to do is close the loop so mm -hmm. that it becomes um, a circular um, activity for people. And of course, that then means you need completely different tech to, to generate that and completely different processing. There are a few warehouses that are starting to be able to run with this. And actually, we, we've spoken in the region to um, a, few, a few different places. And the appetite, I think that will potentially move very fast here. The appetite to sort of learn the reprocessing skills mm -hmm. um, is, is, seems to be bigger here than in Europe. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so. could you just tell us a little, because you've been building your business around the world and you know, you know your field, can you tell us a, a little observations about what you see as some of the different national, or the different distinctions in different territories, either national or regional, including Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, and the UK and Europe or North America? Do you see commonalities and differences? Um, yeah, I mean, the biggest, actually the biggest surprise for me, we were looking at, um, sort of average use per capita of uh, resale, and it's actually France 
is the biggest mm -hmm. resale market, which actually slightly surprised me on a per, per person basis. Um, then the UK, uh, then the then Germany, then the US. I think is the way on a on a on a individual basis uh, per capita for the country. Um, I think probably those areas are all fairly similar in their growth. I mean, we're in Harrods um, as a concession, so we have quite a big um, Saudi market in there. Um, and it's there's definitely appetite in the accessories market, for example. Mm -hmm. Ready-to-wear is more challenging, and I think it's exactly that conversation around, you know, you, you've just come from the restaurant, so they wash the forks. Exactly. Yeah. Wearing it is easier, so, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, think, sorry. sorry, go on. Well, no, I think it's really interesting you mentioned your concession in Harrods where you work with a lot of Middle Eastern and Saudi, you know, and Gulf clients because a lot of Saudi fashion consumption happens abroad, mm -hmm. although a lot more of it is onshore Used now. To be, yeah. um, so the proportion is really changing. But in terms of building a market for... Um, rental and, and circular fashion here. There's also then a lot of circular fashion intelligence already amongst Saudi consumers from their practices and times abroad. So it's about making mm. that also happen here and then having all the other brands, local and international brands here, understand the way into that. I mean, that, that's one of the main questions that we get actually is because we do take stock from individuals as well. And, the, and um, many of our clients who, who are coming into Harrods are saying, I've got, you know, hundreds of bags I'd love to, to be selling here. Um, but they're all in a warehouse or in a storage lockup somewhere in Saudi and UAE and Lebanon, where, wherever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it does definitely feels, but it, it, it's still quite surprising to people, even with even the young generation, that the, the, the resale economy is something that definitely feels newer. But I think there's, there's ways of doing it better, how it's, how it's been done to date in the rest of the world. You know, it's not great. It's sometimes a bit grubby, mm. not very appealing. It's not great for brands. Um, and this is what we've done, so with the tech platform that we've built, uh, my really big passion is to try and give that economy back to the brands who originally made the mm -hmm. item. So um, think of it more like the car market. You know, you've got Mercedes will we'll sell new cars, they'll rent Mercedes, they'll sell second-hand Mercedes. That can all happen from the same showroom without affecting the mark. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no reason that the same shouldn't be happening in the fashion industry. And rather than the benefits going to Vestiaire Collective or um, eBay or Depop or whoever, give give that resale revenue back to the brands so that every time their item sells, they take a, a, a cart. Um, and then that that leads to a future where brands don't need to manufacture as much because they can, they can make up for the loss in the new stock by uh, making making um, funds on the, they get the previously. They more than one bite at the yeah. cherry. Yeah, they sell something more than once. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at my timekeeper. Do I have time for another question before we open? One more. Okay, so this question has a little preamble, and this is for all of you to respond. There was a time when dinosaurs roamed the earth. No, well, there was a time <laughs> when sustainable fashion focused mainly on protecting the natural environment. Now I'm happy to say sustainability has been understood to include social sustainability as well, most new, notably with ensuring fair and safe labor conditions in Rana Plaza. The desk there was, of course, a wake-up call for a lot of people. 
I'm fascinated that this panel lets us foreground an additional component, which is the sustainability or protection of cultural fashion heritage and craft skills. So all of our Saudi panelists are engaged in what I would term commercial cultural custodianship, ways of honoring fashion heritage and skills and protecting the conditions and livelihoods of artisans and craft workers. So in the different and distinctive ways that you work to protect fashion heritage, to secure working and environmental safety, and to circularize, and Sasha, you'll have to tell me if I can make that a verb, <laughs> patterns of consumption to reduced waste. I'm keen to hear examples of challenge and success and also Sasha's reflections on how what you see happening around the world as, as you say the circular economy is, is sort of growing and learning from mistakes. So here's the question. To wind us up, oh that means make people angry, to finish, <laughs> could you each share something you've learned in building sustainability into your business model and when your model was always going to be about sustainability, nonetheless things that you've learned that would be of value to local and international brands within and entering the Saudi and regional market. So one thing that you've learned or a challenge that you've overcome. Uh, who wants to start? You can pick. I'll, I'll jump Go in. Go for it. Um, I, I think I have a, a bit of an issue with the term. I've always had a bit of an issue with the term sustainability because it feels so big and so massive, but yet means so little in the public mm. spheres. Um, Unfortunately, it has uh, created a sense of, you know, a, sim a simple solution to a problem. It's sustainable. But what does it really, really mean? And I think I get a lot of questions from, from people because of my work with Project Just previously of how to know if a brand is good or not, sustainable or not. And it's, people are looking for that, you know, tick mark, that certification, that simple uh, description. But the reality of the matter is that it's quite complex and it's quite nuanced and anybody that tries to slap just a simple label on it is actually in fact probably problematic. So I would, I would look into that and I think it depends, each brand needs to kind of, um, for the lack of true certifications and one single I guess go to, each brand needs to, to be uh, transparent. Transparency is where the start is about what it stands for sustainability and how sustainability affects their business. The way we're looking at it at Abadia is that at the starting point, um, we want to reduce any harm in our supply chain. Um, and that means everything from sourcing material and the type of material that we source, where it comes from, how we treat it, etc to production, uh, both from treating the labor that works on our production, but also in terms of how much quantities we produce and how that affects you know, waste and, and, and having um, overproduction of, of uh, products, which is a big issue in, in the industry. And then once looking at that and waste management, then looking at what additional value we can add to that supply chain, which is our work with the artisan and the craftsmanship, and I think that is really important distinction for, for me personally to make because I never want our work with the women and the artisan to be seen as the only way that we are viewed to be sustainable. It's one of the additional values we bring. Um, but a lot of, I think, the biggest challenge is actually explaining and talking to the consumers about what makes us different and 
why the price point is what it is. Um, and I do believe that, like looking back at maybe even, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, a big um, issue that was happening in the industry is that people depended so much on their sustainability efforts, whether the choice of material or the place of sourcing, and forgot that at the end of the day, it is fashion and it's utility, and people want to look good, they want to feel good, like that is really what's driving them, and so you have to fill, fulfill that aesthetic desire and then do the work to make sure that aesthetic desire is met with the best conditions, which puts a lot of weight on, on the brand. Um, but I think it, it's possible and we can do it and it can be done at scale. Um, it just requires a lot of work both from the supply chain as well as the rest of the value chain, so to say, um, getting the product to the consumer, educating them about the, the beauty of it, the storytelling I think is, is huge as well. Thank you. One of the reasons I asked this question is because I know if our students were here, this would be the question they would ask. <laughs> I want to start a brand or I want to move in fashion media or et cetera. So I think, you know, everybody I loved and everybody will really appreciate that formula that you set out about reducing harm and adding value and bearing in mind it's got to be an right. aesthetically useful attractive right. offer. It's got to be something that people want. I'm gonna to go to Loai next so that we stay with the uh, the fashion design area first. <laughs> I think uh, uh, the concept of uh, sustainability starts from, from, from the person himself. If he, uh, how he treat uh, uh, the environment around him at home, at work, and then he move it to his brand uh, try to find, you know, the uh, sustainable material, uh, no waste or minimum waste in the factory, like we have like 1.5 waste, which is lower than the international uh, uh, waste uh, percentage. And, and then you, you move it to the customers and uh, of course to do this, it will be uh, with, with an expensive uh, uh, and it will be more expensive than the, the normal yes. material. And then the, the, the customers, you have to educate the customer that, look, we are uh, uh, trying to help the environment and, and maintain it. And that's why we are, that's why we are uh, getting um, uh, recycling uh, material and uh, organic material, and this will cost. So now, now as you said, we have to create story, long story, mm -hmm. to convince the customer to buy the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the garment or the goods. So uh, now we have to educate the, the, really the, the customers about sustainability, what is it for, uh, about the environment, until they appreciate it, then it will be easy for us to, to apply it uh, everywhere. And you do something to tempt your customers, don't you? With so them bringing garments in for recycling. Yeah, since uh, 2009, um, I wanted to empty the, the, their closet uh, for, for them to buy a new clothes. So, <laughs> and, and also to uh, tell them that uh, let's reuse it. Bring all these uh, clothes and we're going to clean it and fix it and then we give it to charity. Uh, they will uh, distribute it to people uh, in need. Uh, 
this is one uh, thing uh, until now, until today, uh, every year we, d we, we do, do it twice. Um, for example, I, I, we went uh, and did um, uh, an art pieces, furniture art pieces, out of the waste of the manufacturing uh, uh, fabrics, uh, zipper, uh, buttons, uh, the cardboard of, of the, uh, with the help of uh, 12 designer from, from, from France. So we went, uh, we went extreme. Just this project, of course, uh, we lost any money of this project. Just to tell people what, uh, what can we do from the waste at home or at work or at factory. So uh, we, we have lots of initiatives just to tell people, uh, to educate people about the sustainability. So this is one of the, the things. I Thank think you. one thing that I'm, that I'm really passionate about, about the education piece, that might be an unpopular opinion for a designer to say, but one of the biggest education pieces I feel like is necessary is really changing the mentality, mentality. around consumption to begin with. And I think that's why the work that Sasha's doing is super interesting because it's not just about providing, oh, here is an unsustainable material, an unsustainable design, here's a sustainable design, buy more. But it's actually like taking people outside, breaking that consumption habit that fast fashion actually created, which is this disposability culture of buy, throw, buy, throw, buy, throw, and creating a consumption habit that is more sustainable. Whether that consumption habit that's more sustainable is invested in, you know, Abadia, and that's your what you're able to afford, or if it's a more affordable, even fast fashion brand, to me, that is creating a bigger shift than if we just continue with the same consumption habits, but just move them to sustainable brands. And I think that is the less talked about yeah. part of the industry. And it's obviously as brands, you don't want to say buy less. Like, <laughs> but it is, it is truly, I think, the big shift that needs to happen in the industry. Investment in better pieces, longer term ownership of your pieces, buying consciously, um, buying things that you want to wear and consume over and over again. Thank you. Well, you did a very nice segue. So I'm going to hand briefly over to Sasha for something that you've learned um, and that you've built into your model for creating circularity. As an overall picture, I would say there is always a huge delta between what people say about sustainability and then what they actually do. Mm -hmm. And you just have to accept that because nobody's perfect. Yeah. The good thing is everyone does get there eventually. It, much like puberty. <laughs> so wherever you start from, you, you will improve. Whether it's just simply you stop running water when you clean your teeth. Whatever it might be, that everyone starts making baby steps towards becoming more sustainable. Fashion has to remain sparkly and fun and exciting, otherwise it's, it's not fashion. It can't, can't become too worthy. But the great thing about trying to weave sustainability into fashion and fashion purchasing habits is it because it's sparkly and exciting and something that people want to be associated with, if we can start telling that sustainability story in fashion, it will then percolate into every other area of people's lives. So we perform a huge service by being in the fashion industry and trying to get people to think in a more sustainable way. That is a fantastic pitch. <laughs> that is... That is such an interesting point because I sometimes think fashion gets 
a hard right yeah. about sustainability. Yeah. And often because fashion consumption is seen as non-essential consumption and historically right. is associated with women. And then I want to say, okay, guys, you know, your phones, where do you think those minerals come from? Right. Your cars, where do you think that fabric comes from? And so actually fashion is a conduit for making a dialogue about sustainability, and sometimes precisely because it's seen as not serious, right. can do really serious work. And then we're going to pass over to you for the last word before we open for some questions. Uh, the question was how Oh, yeah, we're a long way from that now. <laughs> Something that you've learned in building sustainability that would be of value for local and international brands and people entering the industry. So sort of something you've learned that's helped you in thinking about pushing your advocacy for circular fashion through the work that you do. So, so with 1954 particularly, obviously we're working with vintage fashion, mostly pre-owned pieces. So naturally, by definition, that's uh, sustainable uh, because you're extending the life cycle of a piece. So we try to do our best with that and with also choosing the right, uh, uh, the companies that we produce our packaging with, all of that, we make sure that we, we work with the right people. As far as there was an interesting discussion, I think, uh, with Shahad and the rest, uh, everyone, about sustainability and sustainability being a buzzword. Mm -hmm. I really think sustainability became a buzzword and became something that sometimes, especially, I don't know, maybe it's a regional thing, maybe, and I really think it's a global thing, because I did live in New York, and I, I think I see similarities in, in people being afraid to ask and people being afraid to share about certain habits they are. And like you said, the talk about sustainability is one thing, and what people actually do is another thing. Because a lot of, for a lot of companies, it's a checklist item, sustainable check. And then when people start to apply it, they see it in a very narrow-minded way where it doesn't extend to the rest of their life. It's not a mindset. Rather, it's something that they do what they think is sustainable and th with the rest they wouldn't share because they worry about being shamed or they're not doing it mm. right or mm. whatever. So I think just removing judgment from that and just like I love that you asked who buys from these fast fashion websites because you know what? Sometimes you're looking for that top or whatever and then you find it there and it's there's a necessity in fashion is beauty and you have something so it's okay that happens it's just about the mindset and what you do overall uh, in helping like just having that ihsan mindset that i talked about earlier of of doing your best with what you can without judging yourself but knowing that you're doing your best to bring things together and make things better on different level levels whether it's environment um you know uh, ethics or even like preserving your culture cultural heritage as far as uh, Regionally, what I think really will help with that is just telling the story. And I think, Shahad, you also uh, touched on that, Luai as well, and, and Sasha, just making people connected, especially here in Saudi. I think we, we moved from a certain economic situation in our near past to another economic situation. And through that, we kind of ha ha all of a sudden developed this ability to buy, 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 and then this story and mindfulness with purchases. And this is not just unique to us. It's also across the world. Fast fashion is there for a reason. But we're missing the link of storytelling, which leads to the mindfulness. Because when you know the story and you understand where things came from and why things are they, uh, the way they are and how they are the way they are, then you buy more mindfully. Then you have a better and deeper understanding uh, for why you're shopping like that or why you should shop like that. And that will affect your approach to sustainability and hopefully all of us doing better. No one's perfect. We're all doing our best to help with this. That's a wonderful way to close because I think it is about the local context and as you say, the sort of 
increase in income leads to certain consumption patterns and then there's a chance to reflect on that. But I think also your point about process and the messiness of life is part of life. Mm -hmm. Because very often when we talk about sustainability, it's very easy for people to aim for or presume or aspire to a position of moral purity. Everything is perfect. Exactly. And then you can be, you know, got at for one bit that was wrong, as you say, the shaming or the failure. And that goes if you're a manufacturer and if you're a consumer. Right. And I think accepting the messiness and the necessary contradiction as part of the trying to do better is a really, really good point. We have a reception to follow and a chance to speak informally with our speakers, but I know that we also have time to capture just a few observations and questions um, in our audience. And my lovely assistant, Sara, is going to rove with the microphone. Um, if you'd like to say who you are, um, then that would be helpful, but you don't have to. And if you could keep your question short, then we'll have time to fit in at least a couple. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sara. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am Rahav Jambi from Arab News. Uh, I would like to ask you, Loya, a question. Um, what kind of advice do you give to younger designers um, as being or, or putting the concept of uh, sustainability to their uh, designs? Me, my younger sister, she just graduated uh, from a fashion school. But when I ask her about sustainability, it's not there. Like, they're not teaching it in colleges yet. So. I, I, as a designer yourself, I want to know your opinion about this. Uh, yani, I, as I said, uh, thank you, it's a great question. Yani. As I said before, it comes from, from you, from the designer, from, from inside. If you believe in it and you put it as one of your uh, uh, yani, um, values, uh, then you can apply it. And you start with the design process from the design. Uh, you apply it into the design first and then you apply it when you choose the fabric, uh, uh, and after that, uh, when you sew it, uh, you sew it, and then when you when, when you sell it, even when you sell it, you you have to create story be behind the yani, what sustainability uh, all about, and uh, and why we have to to um, when you when when you consume a piece, you you keep it as long as you can. And, and, and as a designer, I don't recommend to, to make um, like a fashion trend every month, every six <laughs> months. No, it should be longer, mm -hmm. but w with more varieties. So yeah, yani start, uh, sustainability starts from the design process. Shahad, do you want to come in on that in terms of fashion I mean, education? I do think, I think it's essential uh, that we have it as part of the education uh, system, but I also think anybody starting a brand today or joining a brand as a designer needs to be educated about sustainability because that's the future. And so I think it's really essential to understand that. It has to be authentic, like you said. It has to feel you'll only do it well if, it, mm -hmm. if you believe in it, right. if you're not just doing it for marketing purposes, exactly. for example. Uh, but I think it's, it's essential for her to start to get educated about it. And I hope more schools incorporate it into the curriculum because it needs to be integrated right at the start of the process, like I said. All right. Mm -hmm. You keep giving me good segues because I was just about to say, and at UAL, it is integrated into our yeah. curriculum for fashion and for other creative practice because 
Yes, the urge, the desire to work sustainability comes from within and it's also something you can be taught mm -hmm. and you can learn how to process check, you can learn the infrastructure, both in fashion design but also in fashion retail distribution and management. There are so many points at which ethical workplace practices and sustainability can be integrated into the checklist. Uh, that students are being taught. So that's something where I think also student demand, you know, your sister and her, her peers, the more the students ask for this, the more the tutors are going to gen up and bring in specialists to help, fulfill, help fill that gap. Thank you. Do we have another question or observation? Uh, so my question is for Lei as well. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction. For me? Yes. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in your introduction that Lumar is breaking boundaries and pushing boundaries in terms of fabric, like denim. I remember the denim uh, though, or the patterns, <laughs> the use fan. of the patterns. Big fan in the audience here. Yeah. So, so can you give us more of an insight on how that came about, uh, especially the denim though? The particular. denim though was a really big deal. It was, yeah. It, it was a big deal, but it, was, it wasn't uh, a success uh, move. No? <laughs> People refused to, 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 to wear it. Yeah. yeah, commercially, it's not. It's not it was uh, too avant-garde? Hmm? Yeah. It was too avant-garde. It was too ahead yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah, too uh, avant-garde. Uh, you could at, bring at it out time. again. At that time, yeah, Archive yeah. Piece. I think, I think uh, we, we should try it I again. Think maybe it's time for a comeback. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we will, we will. But uh, we have to to make sure it's organic uh, cotton and yeah. and sustainable <laughs> fabric and yeah, Especially then, then denim. Yeah. We'll do it. Okay. So the question was the denim soap and the patterns. How did those come about? The, 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 the patterns design that you and the thinking behind the denim and the patterns that you use. Look, in your any, I, I, everybody has ideas. Any, all of us. Uh, it's not about uh, any, and, and, and most of them are, are creative. But how you implement the idea, this is the, the creative part. So since uh, like 25 years before we start, Yehel uh, Bishri, he designed uh, denim uh, thobes and nobody even any, liked it. Any, so, so idea is there, but how, to, how you implement it and how you communicate it, this is mm. the key. So we took the same idea and we implement it and we communicate it in a nice way uh, to, to the adult first. They, they refuse to do it, so we make it for the kids. <laughs> and it was a, a hit and success. And those kids are now, they are they're grown now. And like they want one again. <laughs> now, now they want the name for them. <laughs> so sometimes you have the, the right product, it's innovative, it's cool, it's funky, it's sophisticated, it's whatever, but it's not quite the right time. But I love that the you time. repurposed it for juniors <laughs> and that work. But clearly, you're hearing it here now, coming to a store <laughs> near you, the repurposed archive version, fully organic, at a, value, at a perfect price. <laughs> um, have we got time for one more? No? Okay, we've got lots of hands at the back. We're taking one more, okay. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, very interesting uh, topics and panel. Mira uh, Khalil from Al Manwar. So my question is for Shahad. Uh, what is the difference between the Saudi uh, fashion consumer and the international slash uh, American and European consumer? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of differences in terms of. Um, consumption, price point, all of that. But it's, it's really interesting to me to see how um, 
aesthetically speaking, things are resonating with both audiences. The second highest, actually, um, traffic on our website is from the US, New York, and uh, Texas. And so, and we have not done any marketing, or any sort of paid marketing towards those uh, locations. And so, it's very interesting to me to see that that mm. the clothes are resonating with them. Um, and to our earlier conversation about abayas, um, we we do outerwear. We call it outerwear. We call our pieces in in the summer their jackets, and in the winter we do farwas and jackets. Um, and I'm seeing the same garment that a woman in Saudi is wearing it as abaya being worn in New York with a mini dress as like a coat for New Year's Eve. And so it's really a styling uh, point of view. I would say that the, maybe the, the American consumer that we're aware of is definitely more um, aware of the sustainability aspects and fabric, traceability, etc. Um, but while saying that, I think the, the, the Saudi uh, consumer is so, so on point when it comes to quality. They understand fabric so well, finish in a very, you know, detailed way. They, that's one of the main things they appreciate about our product. So overall, there's definitely differences, but I do think aesthetically speaking, we're seeing our product being attractive to Fantastic. those very different audiences, but in a different styling perspective. Thank you so much. And apologies to those of you with questions to ask. We have run out of time, but we will be shortly moving downstairs for a reception where our wonderful speakers will be available to chat. Before we do that, I must make just a few quick thank yous. I'd like to thank my excellent partners at Generation 2030 and Al Manwar, including most especially Sara Al Fayaz, Ragad Al Sanusi, Mohab Al, Al Sagaf, and Joanna Dara. I'm grateful to the British Embassy Riyadh and Suzanne Nohel for bringing us all together. And I thank my terrific colleagues at home at LCF Global. We thank you, our audience, for your participation and your contributions. And on a personal note, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the Saudi fashion professionals and consumers who have over the years so kindly contributed to my research. Some of the fashion professionals who spoke in a professional capacity are name-checked, but of course all the other research participants for reasons of confidentiality, I'm not able to share their names. So I'd really like to make a thank you about that. And my research is ongoing. If anyone, men or women, wants to talk to me about their fashion choices and how things are changing, then come and grab me in the reception and we can set up a time for that to happen. I hope everyone here will be able to join us now for a reception downstairs. Our hardworking speakers have certainly earned a break. So please, before we go, join me in thanking Shahad Al-Ashail, Loe Nassim, Ray Joseph, and Sasha Newell. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Great job. Thank you, Thank you so yeah. much.